If you have your Bible, please turn with me to the very end of the fourth chapter of Luke. We continue our exposition through the Gospel according to Luke, and what an incredible journey it has been. The last few weeks, we have been looking at Jesus' ministry there in Capernaum, that little town on the, the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, a major fishing city there, a fishing port. And what an incredible ministry it has been. Jesus has gone there preaching in the synagogues, and we have seen that He has a word like no other. That His word is marked by immense power. A power which is able to reveal, repel, and rebuke, and redeem from all sorts of evil. We have seen that He has an authority like no other. That this authority transcends both heaven and earth. That He has authority over spiritual powers and principalities with the casting out of demons. And He has power and authority over physical matters with being able to heal the sick. He has a word like no other and authority like no other. And today, in this final portion of His ministry there in Capernaum, we see that He has a resolve like no other. A resolve like no other. Nothing will stop Him from the purpose for which He has come. So with that little introduction, let us now read the text before us. Luke chapter 4, verse 42 through 44. We read, And when it was day, He departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought Him and came to Him and would have kept Him from leaving them. But He said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One thing about human nature is that we love stories about incredible and passionate resolve. Those stories of individuals who in spite of difficulties, in spite of being pulled at every turn, in spite of overcoming incredible obstacles, were unwavering in their resolve, in their deep felt passion to accomplish the purpose given to them. There are several stories of these kind of, this kind of passionate resolve throughout church history. But if you know anything about me, and you've probably been here for any sort of time, there is one person that I, I often frame my own life after with the sense of resolve. And that, that person is a young man, a young missionary who lived long ago by the name of David Brainerd. David Brainerd, the life of David Brainerd, it was basically just a publication of his journal entries. Is one of the few books beyond the Bible that I read every year. David Brainerd was a young man with a broken body who battled with endless health problems that would ultimately take his life at the age of 29. He had a despairing mind, which throughout his journal you find oftentimes him praying that God would finally just please take him from this earth. I don't want to be here anymore, God. He was a lonely soul that often felt alienated from the world around him. Angry at the ministers around him that he didn't see had the same passion for the gospel. 
and a hatred for the people he went to preach the gospel to. A broken body, despairing soul, a lonely man. Yet in spite of it all, this young missionary to the Native Americans in the 1740s is an incredible picture of resolve. His passion for prayer. His emphasis on the spiritual feast of fasting. His joy in the sweetness of the Word of God. His unremitting perseverance through hardship. His relentless focus on the glory of God. His utter dependence on grace. His complete resting in the righteousness of Christ. His constant pursuit of perishing sinners. His strive for holiness while suffering. His unbreakable fixing of the mind on what was eternal. And His finishing well without ever cursing the disease that cut Him down so early. With all his weakness and his imbalances and his sin, Brainerd has provided a key picture of resolve that has aided me several times throughout my ministry. My constant prayer is actually one that was taken from his journal where he writes, Oh, that I might never loiter on my heavenly journey. That I might never loiter, which simply means that I might never stand idly without purpose. That I might never just waste this mission I've been given, this life that I've been given for the glory of God. That I might stand idly while the world dies around me. My friends, Brainerd is an essence of Christian resolve. But what we love about Brainerd and his resolve as well as all of the brothers and sisters throughout the realm of church history that we so look to and are impassioned by. What we love about their resolve is not ultimately anything about them. It's what their resolve reflects about the Christ they serve. Because here's the truth of the matter. In all of his reserve, Brainerd's resolve doesn't hold a candle to the greatest display of resolve ever known to man. And that is the unwavering resolve of Jesus to accomplish the purpose given to Him by the Father in an eternal covenant of redemption. There was never one more, never anyone more resolved to accomplish their purpose than Christ. And that same resolve fuels Him today at the right hand of the Father. There is not a single thing Not a single temptation, no rejection, no sin, no cross, no kings, or no grave that would keep Jesus from accomplishing what He came to do. And that is precisely that, and it is precisely that immense resolve that we find put before us today in this little transitional text. And here's the main point of where we're going to go today as we look through this in exposition. The assurance of our salvation is found in Jesus' unwavering resolve to accomplish every single purpose given to Him to establish His kingdom and save His people. The assurance of your salvation is found in the unwavering resolve of Jesus. That's where we're going to go this morning. We see three examples of Christ's unwavering resolve from our text. The first thing that we see is we see that Christ was resolved in prayer. 
he was resolved in prayer. Verse 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Now, how is it that we know that he went out to pray? Well, the, the parallel to this passage, and that's what we have with the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Lucas, there are parallels to these. And the, the parallel version to this account is found in Mark chapter 1, verse 35 to 39. And Mark tells us why he went out to the desolate place. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, we read, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So what is he getting up super early for? Why is he going out in the middle of nowhere, in the wilderness? What is the purpose of doing this? And the answer is to pray. The Lord went out to pray. Jesus had spent his entire Sabbath day doing acts of mercy. We just saw that. That casting of the demon in the synagogue, healing Peter's mother-in-law and casting out another demon, that all happened in a single day. That's a day's work for Jesus. And it was all on the Sabbath. What would have been his day of rest. But rather than being able to dwell in that rest, Christ performs an entire day of mercy. This is why the Lord of the Sabbath never broke the Sabbath. Because what does he say? My father says, I desire mercy over sacrifice. So he actually fulfills the essence of the Sabbath by performing mercy and bringing rest to those who don't have it. So he spends his entire Sabbath working, ministering for mercy. And so what that tells us then is that this very early morning that he has arisen was a Sunday morning. An early Sunday morning. Before, while it's still dark, Jesus goes out to the mountain. He goes out to the wilderness to pray. To be with his Father and to be recharged spiritually from the immense work that he had just done and that he must continue to do. Jesus is already paving a pattern for what will be the call for His people. To wake up upon their Sunday mornings. To go to worship. To be recharged from the spiritual battles of the week before and the week ahead. Christ gets up early at daybreak to go and pray. Why was he so just absolutely um, drained? Well, we see that every time Christ heals, his humanity, Christ fully God, fully man, his humanity is immensely drained from the healing. When we get to the woman with the issue of blood, right? When she touches the, the hem of his garment, what does he say? Power has gone out from me. And this is the great reality of what Christ does. Every time Christ heals, He must give a portion of Himself. And that's why in order for Him to heal the fullness of His bride, He had to give the fullness of His life. He must give the fullness of Himself in order to provide healing to those who are hurting. So He is drained. Spiritually, He's drained. His humanity is weak and He goes and He gets up. And he goes to prayer. 
I love this because this is so counterintuitive to what we think. Oftentimes we think when we are wearied from the week, the best thing for us to do is to sleep in longer. To, to waste the day away doing nothing. To kick our feet up and spend our day idle. That's the best day to recoup and recover. But Christ says no. Christ says the best way to recoup and recover is to worship. Is to pray. Is to press into the Father. And to receive the strength and power He alone can give. My friend, you have got to get rest from the grind of labor and life. The Lord has called His people to rest. He's built it within nature itself. Winter is nature's rest cycle. Winter is no waste. It's not idle. Winter is when nature rests and stores up its strength in order to blossom, grow, and bear fruit in the spring, summer, and autumn. And just like God has created nature to rest, He has called His people to rest. You need to rest in order that you can restore up the strength in order to blossom, grow, and bear fruit in the week ahead. And that is precisely why the Lord has given us this time to pray, this time to worship, But not just here. You need to find those pockets of Sabbath wherever you can get them. Whether it's Monday morning, Tuesday morning, I ought to say you ought to get up every morning and do this. You should start your day with prayer just like our Savior did. Jesus did not go out to the wilderness to be away from people forever. He wasn't a a, a monk. He didn't practice the Benedict option of let's just get away from everyone. No, he isolated to pray, not to stay. The wilderness was a retreat, not a residence. And that's how we should be too. We need to get away from people sometimes. We need to isolate. We need to go to the prayer closet. We need to take a step away sometimes. But never to stay there. We go to pray, not to stay. We go to retreat, not take residence. And that's hard as the world grows dark. Luke chapter 5, verse 16, we are told that this is something Jesus often did. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Why? Jesus has spent all eternity in communion with his Father. All eternity. And so nothing is going to keep him from going and having those moments of communion. And he shows us where we have communion with God, and that's prayer. If you're not praying, you are robbing yourself from the presence of God. Period. You are robbing yourself from strength. You are robbing yourself from power. You're robbing yourself from purpose. Prayer provides clarity in our resolve and the strength to perform it. You can't be resolved if you don't know what you're doing. You can't resolve if you don't know your purpose. You can't be resolved if you don't know the end goal. But prayer clarifies purpose. Prayer leads us and directs us into God's will. Prayer doesn't change God's will. Prayer changes our will to God's. 
And it says, okay, God, thy will be done. Thy will be done. And this is what Christ does. Christ communed with his father for the purpose of being renewed in his ministry and his purpose for the purpose of perfectly accomplishing his salvation for us. Prayer was absolutely an essential lifeline for the man, Jesus. And if it was for him, how much more so you? If Christ should need to retreat to pray, how much more do you need to? If Christ should start his day with prayer, how much more do you need to? If he should spend that precious hour of prayer with his father, how much more do you need to? But it's important to note that his prayers were not just for him. His prayers were for us. And my friend, Jesus' resolves to pray for us, his, his resolve to pray for us as His people, did not cease with His resurrection and ascension. That same resolve to pray in His life on the earth is the same resolve He has to pray right now at the right hand of the Father. Listen to these texts. Romans chapter 8, verse 32-34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised... Who, has that, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, praying for us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, He, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. His resolve to prayer has not stopped an ink, inkling. It hasn't given up at all. And the assurance of our salvation is based upon the grand reality that you have a King and a Lord who day after day prays for your salvation. That's your guarantee. When everything else fails, when all the darkness caves in around you, when you stumble time and time again, you have a Savior who prays for you. So you can draw near to Him because He daily carries you to the throne of His Father. His kingdom is still being built. The fullness of His bride is still being rescued. The rest of His sheep are still being gathered. And because of that, He still prays with unwavering resolve. And so if you struggle sometimes wondering if the Father hears your prayers, take heart. Because you can be absolutely confident He hears the prayers of His Son. And they are for you, dear Christian. They are for you. Jesus is in the midst of this prayer. And like so much of good prayer, it is not long before it gets interrupted. It is not long before we're told that the crowds seek Him out. Literally, they're going out in the wilderness to find Him. They're on a, on a search and rescue mission for Jesus. Not to rescue Him, but He needs to rescue more of us. So they are out, they're going, and they are trying to find Him. In Mark's account, we actually see that it was Peter who came directly to get Jesus. And this is what we read, Mark chapter 1, verse 36-37. And Simon and those who were with him searched for Him. And they found Him and said, Everyone's looking for you. In other words, where are you at? 
These people are beating down our door looking for you. And I don't know how to hold them back any longer. I love Mark's gospel because Mark's gospel oftentimes gives us some little nuggets that we're like, where did that detail come from? And the reason why is because Mark gets his gospel from Peter. Peter is the one relaying that. And so the reason why this is here is because Peter told Mark, and I went and got him and was like, hey, where's everybody at? He's praying and immediately people are already interrupting. Hey, hey, where are you at? Hey, I got a cousin who needs healing. Hey, my, my friend so-and-so has got a weird freckle on his face. Can you get rid of that? What, what is going on? Right, This is what's happening. They're constantly going after him. He tries to get away. He needs some rest. He needs some recuperation. He wants to spend time in intimate uh, prayer with his father and interruption after interruption after interruption. It amazes me how few things are more interrupted than our attempts to quietly pray. We can sit and watch a movie and have our minds locked in for three hours. No distraction. We can listen to a concert fully engaged. We can have a conversation with a friend and be amazed at how the time passed. But let us try to pray. And watch the interruptions and distractions come. We seek to go into prayer and before we know it, a crowd of interruptions tracks us down. A child screaming down the hall. An invasive thought that comes in to carry away our brain. A buzzing cell phone. Or... You know, I'm going to pray while I lie in bed just to find myself falling asleep before an amen ever happens. The great spiritual battles, my friend, rarely begin with major disasters. They begin with minor distractions. As the proverb said, it's the little foxes that destroy the vineyard. We think it's these big major disasters in our life that stop the battle. It's like, no, it's the minor distractions. Those little inklings to carry our minds and hearts a little by little away from God. A little from, away from the communion that we once had with Him. All of these things can carry our minds and hearts away from that intimate communion that we are seeking from our Heavenly Father. I know the battle. I know it very intimately. And it is so difficult. But what this text makes clear is that your Lord knows the battle also. You have a high priest who is able to sympathize with you in the distractions to your prayer life. In the interruptions with your communion with God. And So when you struggle with being faithful in prayer, when you struggle with the interruptions and distractions of daily life, you have a Savior who says, I know. I know. But there are two things that we can learn from the Lord in the midst of those distractions. The first is that the distraction does not cause him to sin in his thoughts towards the distractions. He doesn't lash out at the interruption. He doesn't say, don't you people know what I'm trying to do here? I'm talking to my father. How dare you come and seek me out? He doesn't allow the interruptions to let sin brew in his heart. 
Secondly, he doesn't throw up his hands and consider his prayer time meaningless. Well, you know what? I can never get a second anyways. Why pray? Because we're going to see in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, this. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer. A few distractions never threw him off from the necessity of prayer. It never moved him from that necessity of being in constant communion with his father. How often we let a couple of distractions. You know, I try to pray in the morning, but I just keep getting caught up with work or things like that. And we just, before we know it, we're throwing our hands up. And the enemy is one. Because little by little, we just said, you know what? It's not even worth it, but not Christ. His resolve to pray was too strong. And praise be to God it was because those prayers were for us. Those prayers were for us. So my friends, don't let the distractions of life pull you away from that sweet hour of prayer. Be resolved to pray just like our master was. Because he is able to sympathize with you in the way interruptions so often seek to draw you away from them. But he also instructs us by his example to not give up on that most necessary of lifelines. Christ was resolved to pray. And so we must be as well. His utter resolve to prayer led him to also being greatly resolved in purpose. And this is our second point. He was resolved in purpose. We see this in verse 43. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Notice something at the end of verse 42. It says that they would have kept him from leaving them. The Greek word for kept there literally means restrain, to physically withhold. They would have done anything to make sure Jesus stays in Capernaum. You're not going anywhere. Now, this was quite opposite from what he received at Nazareth when they tried to throw him off a cliff to kill him. But who can blame them? Who can blame the Capernaum? for wanting to keep Jesus there. This is the greatest teacher they've ever heard. The most powerful exorcist they've ever seen. The most effective healer they've ever known. Who can blame him for for not wanting him to go? Who can blame them at all for that? Of course they don't want him to leave. And oh, the comforts that Christ could have known. Jesus setting up His healing station there in Capernaum. Could you imagine the life He could have lived if He gave in to the temptation of such comforts? Fueled by riches, drinking the the best of wine, having whatever attention He needs because of His power. Oh, the temptations of the flesh. The comforts put before Him. The the compliments that must have been lavished upon Him. You're the best. I've never heard anyone teach the way you do. Your teaching is just amazing. It's so incredible. Uh, The way that you you healed her that way, that was so awesome. She just kind of came up out of the bed. The way that that demon just popped up in the synagogue out of Fred, never seen it. 
You're the best. You're amazing. Comforts and compliments flooding the flesh of the humanity of Christ. And my friends, I want you to know this indeed was another temptation of the flesh that Christ overcame for you and me. You see, the enemy's temptations to pull us away from God and pull us away from His purpose for us are often masked in seemingly good things. Whether they are fleshly comforts like He offered Jesus in the wilderness, I'll give you all the kingdoms. You hungry? I'll give you bread. Or whether they're like compliments at Capernaum. You're the best. We don't want you to go anywhere. Or when they look like deep felt concerns like Peter, you can't go and die. Comforts, compliments, and concerns. And yet they were all instruments of the enemy to try to keep Jesus from the cross. To try to keep Him from the purpose for which He gave. Jesus, take the comfortable route. Why go through all this suffering? Look at how well these people speak of you. They love you. They'll let you be a king. Why go through all that stuff? Don't you know the tribulations that this life's going to bring you if you go down that road, cried Jesus? Why put your family through it? Why make your mother suffer to watch? Comfort, compliments, and concerns are all good things. But they can be radically used as an instrument for the enemy to lure you away from divine purpose. Christ knows the heart of this crowd. So He's not pulled away by their compliments. He's not pulled away by their offers offers of comfort. He knows that their flattery is less about Him and more about them. They want Christ for what He offers, not for who He is. They're interested in the healings, the teachings, the power. It lures them in. And my friends, many of false teachers and charlatans have been lured in by the picture of power that the gospel brings. Simon the magician in Acts. So many others. None of what they saw moved them to actual repentance and faith. It just moved them to awe and excitement. And awe and excitement won't get you saved. Repentance and faith will. And we know that this was the case because in Luke 10, Jesus actually makes an indictment on the cities where he had preached and performed works and yet they would not repent. We see this in Luke chapter 10, verse 13 through 15. Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida, 
For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. This is the same Capernaum that went out to the desolate place to seek Him. What is, what's going on, Jesus? But they would come out to the wilderness to see you. They left their houses. They wanted to go after you. No, they didn't. They didn't want to go after me. They wanted to go after what I could give. I know how many are like Capernaum. They go after Jesus not because of who He is, but because of what He offers. He is a glorified, get out of hell free card. That I can stamp upon my heart and go live like hell the rest of the time. But not our Christ. This Christ says you must come to me for who I am, not what I offer. What He offers is merely an overflow of who He is. They loved Jesus, the great teacher. They loved Jesus, the powerful exorcist. They loved Jesus, the the great healer. But they knew nothing of Jesus, the Lord. They knew nothing of Jesus, the perfect, unwaveringly resolved Savior. My friends, people are always trying to get Jesus to be something other than who He was and who He is. And this is still true today. But Jesus is unmoved from his resolve. He has not come to be a celebrity preacher. He has not come to be a good healer. He has not come to just be the savior of a small group. He came to be the savior of the cosmos. He came to perfectly redeem every sheep given to Him by the Father in absolute and perfect salvation. And He will be perfect in doing so. Nothing was going to stop Him from His divine mission. Do you hear the resolve in His voice? I must go and preach the good news of the kingdom. I must do it. That's resolve. It's not commitment. I originally going to title this sermon a commitment, like no, but I don't like commitment. Commitment's like, well, I made so I kind of put I, I got to put my money where my mouth is. I'm committed now. I made a vow. No, resolve is passion. I must go. There is nothing that will stop me from this. And so I'm gonna this going off the deep end here, but let your marriage be one of resolve, not commitment. Be passionate about your pursuit of your covenant relationship with your spouse. Don't just be committed. Commit is like, oh, we're in it for what we're in it. You know, might as well do it. Resolve says, I will not stop pursuing you. This is Christ. This is how He gives us the picture of what marriage should be. His pursuit for His bride. Unyielding in it. Unyielding in it. I must go. These kind of I must statements are found throughout the Gospel of Luke. We saw it when he was at the temple, Luke 2.49. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? I must be here. I must be about my Father's business. Luke chapter 9, verse 22, where the rubber really meets the road. The Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. And be killed and on the third day be raised. 
Luke wants to make clear through these statements that Jesus was God on mission and nothing was going to shake his resolve from accomplishing his purposes. The eternal jubilee year had come. And it was time to go and proclaim liberty to the captives. Good news to the poor. And nothing was going to stop him from it. He had been divinely commissioned in an intra-Trinitarian covenant with his father. And he volitionally came to perfectly fulfill his father's will. Nothing was going to throw him off the path of faithfulness. And we should never lose our grand sense of awe over the reality that the greatest news in all the earth was not first proclaimed by men, nor prophets, nor even angels. It was proclaimed by God Himself in the flesh. That is remarkable. And that's why I don't take this preaching thing lightly. Because God came and became a preacher. And he said, this is what I want preached. This is the word that I have for all peoples. Don't dare give them anything else. God himself came to preach it. And that is remarkable. The good news. Preach the good news. It's marvelous. And don't ever lose the sense of awe over it. The kingdom of God is the essence of the good news. And what, what is the kingdom of God? It is the presence of all of God's power and presence. And we are told that it is fully present in the purpose of Jesus and the person of Jesus. The kingdom of God, all of God's power and presence is fully found in the person and purpose of Jesus Christ. And what he came to do was to establish and expand his kingdom through the proclamation of the good news of the gospel. The kingdom of God is Jesus' most commonly preached theme. The kingdom of God. Why? Because where the king is, the kingdom goes. The king didn't come to say, I'm going to establish a kingdom sometime in a few thousand years. No, He came to establish it then. And He has been building it ever since. And when He comes again, it will be to consummate the kingdom He has built and expanded. And how, will he, how has He expanded it? Through the proclamation of His body, the church. Our purpose is, was His purpose. To go and preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other cities. Not to stand idly by. They wanted Christ to stay. But Christ did not come to make a home in the present world. He came to build a kingdom for eternity. And that kingdom would contain a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So he couldn't stay. I can't stay here. There's too many who need to hear me. He had to go and proclaim the good news to a dying world. And that's precisely what He continues to do through His body to this day. My friends, we are His body. We are called to go and accomplish this purpose as well, to preach the good news to all who will hear. Yet so often, we are just like Capernaum. 
We want Jesus to stay right where we are instead of going where He calls. We're okay with you coming to us, Jesus, and staying here where we're comfortable. But don't call us out there. It's scary out there. I don't, I'm afraid to have to walk in faith into that which I don't know. But that's precisely where Christ calls you. Christ calls you to where you can't see and where you don't know. But the only thing you know is Him. And He says, follow me. And that's when you live on mission. When there is no rhyme or reason. When there is no comfort to fall back on. When you can't explain it or budget it. When you can't put it in a 10-year plan. But all you know is He's called me. And I must go. That's when you know Christ is called. Christ does not call you to stay where you are. He says, follow me. Follow me. And the goal is to say, I want to be where the king is. Wherever he's at work, that's where I want to be. We don't want to say, Jesus, stay right here at Hillside. But take us with you. Lead us to the dying of Anchorage. Lead us to the outcasts of Alaska. Lead us to the perishing of America. Lead us to the lost of the world. Jesus, take us with you. Take us with you. May your purpose, our purpose, and make your resolve, our resolve, Lord. Jesus was resolved in purpose and nothing was going to remove him from it. And we see that very clearly in the final point. Verse 44, he was resolved in practice and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is in many ways just a summary statement. He must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And here we see him putting it to practice. He said he was going to do it. And that's precisely what he goes and does. He doesn't wait around for a little while. He doesn't sit there and say, well, you know, let me kind of get stored up. Let me build up my bank account a little bit before I go. No. He says, I must go. And he goes. I must preach. And he preaches. Here, Luke has it that he preached in the synagogue of Judea from the other synoptics. We know that he's at this time maintained his ministry there in Galilee. But because Luke is writing to a Gentile in Theophilus, he simply is saying he is focusing his ministry in the synagogues of the Jews. That's really the primary focus that, that, that Luke wants to give us here. But nevertheless, he was resolved in practice. He practiced what he preached. I must go. And he goes. Jesus never offered empty words. Every word he spoke, he followed with perfect action. That's why the word of God doesn't return void. Because where his word is put forth, action follows. The spirit waits upon the word. And when the word is proclaimed, it moves and it acts. And that's Christ. Christ goes where the spirit goes. When, when, he, when his word is put forth, he will be faithful to fulfill it. He is resolved in practice. There is nothing that I won't do that I said I would do for the sake of my people. If he must preach to other cities, that's what he will do. If he must suffer, that is what he will do. 
If He must die on a cross, that is what He will do. If He must raise to life, that is what He will do. The resolve in His prayer life fortified the resolve in His purpose which drove the resolve of His practice. Do you see how it works together? His time in prayer clarified the nature of His purpose which drove the resolve of His practice. What was true for Him is true for us. If you're not in prayer, you're not going to know a purpose. And if you don't know your purpose, you're going to be idle in practice. But if you immerse yourself in prayer, you will be clarified of God's will and His purpose for you. And when you are absolutely certain of God's will for you, you will act without abandonment. You will act with utter and complete resolve to say, I know this is where He's calling me and I must go. I must act. I must do. I must speak. These things work together. And every part of his life was a purpose, a perfect purpose of being resolved to bring about everything necessary for you and for me. He communed with his father. And because he communed with his father, he was certain of his father's will for him. And he lived faithfully accomplishing every aspect of that will for your and my sake. My friends, our assurance is tied to this grand reality. That every purpose given to Christ, He faithfully accomplishes in practice. That is every ounce of assurance we have is found in the fact that He is perfect in practice. He fulfilled all righteousness. And that righteousness is the basis by which any one of us will ever stand justified before a holy God. His perfect practice, His perfect resolve, His perfect work is why any of us can stand right before a holy God. We are wicked practitioners. Every turn we fall short. All the time we fall over our own feet. Full of flaws and error. Just when we think we're going, we derail ourselves time and time again. But not Christ. He is faithful to the finish. He is perfect in every practice. He accomplishes everything with absolute and utter resolve. No matter what it is. We are prone to wander. Prone to leave the God we love. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. He was faithful in every way. He was faithful in every law. He was faithful in every practice. He was faithful in every action. He was faithful in every word. In every thought. He only brought glory to His Father and righteousness for us. He was resolved to leave His glory in heaven and to be born in a borrowed stable among beasts. He was resolved to be born to poor parents where he would grow up in poverty. He was resolved to be a man of sorrows having nothing on his own. He was resolved to be rejected by those he loved. He was resolved to fulfill every law of God in both its letter and intent. He was resolved to be beaten and flogged. He was resolved to die a most brutal of deaths on a cross. He was resolved to drink the full cup of God's wrath designated for every sinner who would believe upon him. He was resolved 
resolved to be buried in a borrowed tomb. He was resolved to raise on the third day. He was resolved to ascend to glory where he now rules and reigns with all authority on heaven and earth. And now he is resolved to gather every lost sheep given to him by the father. He is resolved to not lose one of them. He is resolved to one day bolt out of heaven in immense glory and destroy all evil, all darkness and all death once and for all. And he is resolved to then create a new heaven and earth where we will dwell with his glorified people in an eternal paradise forever and always never to be lost again. Oh, my friends, he is resolved. My king is resolved. Jesus is absolutely resolved in accomplishing every single action necessary to build His kingdom and save His people. And it is in that truth that you will find all the assurance you ever need for your salvation. There is nothing that He won't accomplish to save me to the uttermost. He is resolved in prayer. He is resolved in purpose. And He is resolved in practice. Here's some closing takeaways to this morning. First, through His unwavering resolve, Jesus has obtained a perfect salvation for His people. He is a perfect Savior because He is resolved in every way to ensure that nothing, nothing will keep you from being saved by Him. If He has set His saving affections upon you, nothing will stop it. And because of His all-sufficient merit, everything necessary for you to stand in the righteous presence of the Holy God has been obtained and given to you by faith. It's all Him. When you get to glory, you will not look at yourself. You will look at Him. And if you are Him by faith, my friends, when you receive the crown of glory on that day, you will cast it back at His feet and you will say, you're the winner. You're the hero. You're the reward. Because He is resolved in every way from start to finish, your eternity is based upon Him and Him alone. Through his unwavering resolve, he is a perfect Savior and has provided a perfect salvation for his people. So stop trying to make it about you. Stop trying to do works that don't matter. They're filthy rags. No, my friends. If you're trying to earn your standing with God, you've already lost. He has earned it all. And let the faithfulness and good works you do be nothing but an extension of everything He's done for you already. This is merely the fruit of a heart that has been blossomed by the grace of God. You need not earn anything. You can't do enough. But His all-sufficient merit has been done for you. And it is more than enough to save you forever. And secondly, through his unwavering resolve, Jesus has provided a master example for his people. Jesus is our perfect Savior. He has done everything necessary to ensure our salvation. 
but now He calls us to follow Him. And as our master example, He demonstrates for us what true spiritual resolve looks like. So I want to close by putting these three questions upon your heart. Are you resolved in prayer? Do you lead with prayer? Is prayer an essential lifeline of your life? Can you say, I must pray? Are you like Daniel? I gotta go pray. I don't care what men tell me I can and can't do. I have to pray. It's death not to pray for me. Do you pour yourself out in prayer? Seeking the will of God. Lord, I need you. Do you find that time to to plug away, to get away for a moment, to go to that sweet hour of prayer with the Lord? Yes, we are to pray without ceasing, and we should throughout the day. But are you finding intentional times to get away where it is nothing but you and God? My friends, be resolved in prayer. Because if you are resolved in prayer, you will be resolved in purpose. So are you resolved in purpose? We have two absolutely clear purposes from Scripture. First, we have a creational purpose. And what were we created for? We were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is our creational purpose. You were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Sin broke that. Or we couldn't glorify Him. And we couldn't enjoy Him. But Christ came and He made it new. And He restored your heart so that now you could live a life for the glory of God. Daily being satisfied in the enjoyment of all that you have in Him. Are you glorifying God and enjoying Him forever? But not only do we have a creational purpose, we have a commissional purpose. And Jesus says, go and make disciples. You have a purpose. I don't care where you are. You have a purpose to go and make disciples. Stay at home mom, go and make disciples. Man in the oil fields, go and make disciples. Woman in the schoolhouse, go and make disciples. Man in the business suit, go and make disciples. If that is not at the forefront of every action, your purpose is already off. Your purpose is already broken and marred. And is a representation of the flesh, not the Father. Enjoy God and and glorify Him forever. And go and make disciples. That is your purpose. Yes, you will have other purposes. You will have other callings in your life. You will have other things. But those two will always stand as the preeminent purposes for why you exist. Are you resolved in purpose? Lastly, are you resolved in practice? Do you actually practice what you preach? Do you come here on Sunday locked in in prayer, excited about purpose, just to let it fall short tomorrow? Do you constantly put off things that you know God has called you to do? I know He's called me to that ministry, but it's just not the time. I know He wants me to adopt a new child, but I don't think we're ready. I know that I have it burdening on my heart to go and speak to my neighbor, but you know, I'm a little afraid. Maybe I need to learn some more apologetics. I have these things that He's poured upon my heart, but I never do it. The orphan Annie is our patron saint because it's tomorrow. Tomorrow. I'll start it tomorrow. We're constantly putting it off. And Christ says, now is the time to practice. Tomorrow isn't promised. What is it that He's calling you to? 
What is it that through your prayer, He has purposed upon your heart to now put into practice? Don't waste any longer. Don't waste any time. Redeem the time for the days are evil. Now is the time to put it to practice. Now is the time to walk in faith. Now is the time to with with unwavering resolve say, I will follow you wherever you lead me. If all I know is you, Jesus, that's enough. Are you resolved in practice? Knowing in all your heart the purpose and saying, I will act in faith for my God and for my King, Jesus. Are you resolved in prayer? Are you resolved in purpose? Are you resolved in practice? Oh, look to Christ and follow Him. Go and live your life fully resolved for the glory of God, resting in the assurance of the all-sufficient merit that Christ's resolve has obtained for you. He is resolved. Oh, that His people might be as well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You so much for Your resolve for Your people, for Your unwavering desire, Your relentless pursuit of us, that nothing would get in Your way from saving us. Nothing would stop You from ensuring our utter and complete salvation, from justification to glorification. Lord, every step of the way, it is You who is at work for us. It is You whose purpose for us is coming to pass. It is You who daily intercedes for us in glory. It is You who daily puts to practice a loving care and and nurture as our dear shepherd. Lord, daily You are resolved. Minute by minute You are resolved. And so God, I pray, make Your resolve our resolve. God, make your people a resolved people who are resolved in their prayer, who must go and pray with you, who must spend time with you, who lead with prayer. God, make us resolved in purpose. Let us be directed by your will. Let our eyes be stamped by your glory, by a longing to glorify you and enjoy you in all things, by a desire to go and make disciples of a lost world. God, make us resolved in practice. No longer being habitual procrastinators spiritually, where we constantly put it off, giving in to the distractions and finding every reason to blame but ourselves. And let us finally walk in faith for what you've been calling us to. Melt away the fear that is upon our hearts that is keeping us and paralyzing us from acting and stepping forth in faith. And let us go live for you, God. Let us live for you in a way we never have. With unwavering resolve. With a heart fixed like our Savior's was. All for you. All for your glory. All for the lost. Help us, Lord, be resolved. To rest on your all-sufficient merit. Knowing that everything we do is only an extension of everything you've done. We stand here because of you. We sing because of you. We worship because of you. We preach because of you. We live because of you. Lord, it's all you. So fix our eyes upon you today. And fix our hearts with a resolve to go and follow you wherever you lead. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.